Let's talk audio. First things first. Uh, do you have any questions? No, I mean, just thank you for having me. I'm really, uh, this is really cool. And I'm glad that we were able to make this, make this work and meet here over this weird interface. This is cool. Have you ever heard of Squadcast before? I have because I've been in, I've done a lot of podcast uh, editing and, and mastering, but um, so I know that this is you know this is the way that a lot of folks are able to uh, to interact and and talk from long distances. But I love that it's become such a useful tool during this really weird and difficult time. Yeah, I heard about it like mm, about a year ago, maybe a little longer ago than that, and I was like super excited because I had tried doing a podcast interview just like to test it out with somebody over zoom and I don't hate zoom, but it just was like, sweet Lord Jesus. No. And so I remember being like, there's gotta be a better way. And so came across this cause I listened to another podcast and they brought it up and I was like, Oh, okay. We're going to give this a shot. First time I tried it. I was like, yeah, this is way better. <laughs> it's a lot easier too. Cause everything's like right there for you to download instead of having like all these external factors. Right on which is always nice. First things first, Piper, who are you? What do you do in this world? <laughs> wow. Well, I'm an Aries. <laughs> I like, I like cheeseburgers and, uh, and, and playing with my dogs. I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm being cute, but those things are actually really serious parts of me. And, um, I'm, I master records for a living and I've been in, in the audio world for, well, going on 15 years now. And, hmm. Started out my career doing classical recording and and trying to sort of recreate these incredible live events in a recorded form, almost like trying to time travel or something. You know, like you're just all about trying to make sure that you can recreate every every intimate moment of that recording and what it was like to be in the audience. But then I kind of realized that I was just going to be recording the classical repertoire over and over and over again, and I got kind of bored of that. So I ended up, I, this is like, I, I kind of realized this when I was in grad school, actually. And, and I ended up getting this job doing tape transfers in, when I was in grad school. And then uh, the consulting engineer there was a mastering engineer. And I had, of course, heard of mastering before, but I never really knew what it was. And he invited me out to his facility to just shadow him for a couple of days, maybe maybe work as an assistant. And from the moment I I sat down, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I want to do. I can be really detail-oriented just like in classical recording, really focused on quality, just like in classical recording. But I get to work with every kind of music possible and maybe even one day could work with Beyonce. So I was like, all right, this is it for me. I want to I want to be a mastering engineer. So that then began, you know, and I wish someone would have been like, um, maybe just go work in a recording studio or mixing studio for a lot longer. And then maybe become a mastering engineer because I definitely like, I like beep, beep, beep backed my way into this weird career of mastering because most of the time engineers, mastering engineers are like mid forties dudes who have been spending most of their time, you know, for the last 20 years recording and mixing records that they then eventually learned how to master and, and they're seen as these like keepers of of like what makes a good record because they've had 20 plus years of recording experience. And I, here I am like this, you know, early twenties you know, gal who's just like, I want to be a mastering engineer. And, and I ended up turning into this, this 
person who was absolutely determined to be a mastering engineer, even though I wasn't an old white dude. And I, I, I don't regret, I don't regret it one minute of it, but I just maybe would have liked to know how hard it was going to be because I spent a lot of time just trying to get over the hurdle of where I was coming from. And, you know, like I said, a lot of times mastering engineers are seen as like authorities on quality in recording and quality music. And without having that multiple decades of experience, I had to basically fast track my way to through that experience, you know, like get my 10,000 hours in within the first couple of years. Otherwise, I wasn't going to be able to have a career. So that's kind of how, you know, that's how I ended up doing mastering. And what I do now is I'm very lucky. I just get to master records all day long. Pretty much a new record a day is about what I'm doing. And I have a really incredible client base that that uh, sends me a lot of work. I really enjoy working with independent artists, with major labels, with every kind of work from, you know, from pop to classical to country to hip hop to like everything. Mastering is not, I like to say that mastering is genre agnostic. So we don't, you know, it's more about how the presentation is and the overall, you know, technical specifications of the album. And hopefully the mastering engineer that you're working with is, is well-versed enough in, in, in all kinds of music to be able to make some decisions on what your music needs. So that's the, uh, that's what I do in my normal, like day job now. I'm very lucky to be able to say that took me like 10 solid years to develop a career in mastering, but I, uh, I also am right in the thick of trying to open uh, my very own vinyl record pressing plant. So manufacturing plants are really hard to open, and especially ones in such a weird, like, wild, wild west of, of music as, as the vinyl world is right now. So I've been working on that for a lot of years, and it's already, it's, now it's starting to come to a, to a head. So hopefully we'll be open sometime early next year. Well, now that you answered all of my questions in a solid five minute, we're done. This was a great episode. This is so much fun. All right. <laughs> Talk to you later. Let's go to the bar. Let's go to that the bar. That was the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. That was a lot. We're going to unpack that. There's three questions that I came up with that out of that. Okay. So going into school, because you obviously went to college, you got the master, you got the undergraduate, you got the master's. So did you go into college knowing that you wanted to do audio? Or was it like something that you kind of got there, you were studying music, and then you were like, ha audio. <laughs> I, I got, I went in and not really knowing what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a veterinarian, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, for most of my, and then I realized this is going to be the most like perfect distilled version of me just to give you like. Uh, you'll see this theme running through through my life. I really wanted to be a veterinarian. I really wanted to work with animals. I love dogs. And then I actually went into trying to be a veterinarian. And I realized that I not only am I not really that good at biology in general, like those kinds of sciences, but also I would I realized that I would have to put animals down and like take care of really sick animals. And and I learned, I realized that like after I was already applying to colleges <laughs> and like touring, touring specific universities for their veterinary programs. And anyway, so I, uh, I, I kind of realized that when I was about like maybe about a junior in, in high school and, and I ended up going into, into college for electrical engineering because I've always been really handy. I've always really enjoyed like basically how things work and mechanics and things like that. And so I, 
ended up uh, starting a degree in electrical engineering. And when I was in, I was in the marching band at U, U of M at University of Michigan. And uh, on the drum line, there were a couple of dudes that were in this cool program that I had never heard of called the PAT program, the Performing Arts Technology Program. And it was basically, uh, it was basically a music technology degree but there were different levels of focus. So you could focus super like into just gear, like working on like gear, electrical engineering, or really o- only in the music side and like performance with electronics or what I went, ended up doing, which was like a re- like recording focused track. So I, I ended up applying for that program um, after I had already done a lot of my prereqs for electrical engineering. So I was able to kind of fast track through that program. Um, and then I ended up going to grad school. And I, I'm not sure where the program stands right now. At the time, it was a master's equivalent. I'm not, I don't think it's actually a master's. It was sort of a, uh, it's like a graduate studies certificate program. I don't know if, I don't know where it stands right now. But at the time, it was sort of, it was still sort of a new program. So I went off to Norway for grad school and tried to learn some Norwegian. But they would, it was easier for them to just speak English back to me because it's English is a second language uh, English is a first language in Norway, and then they have a second language that's like French or Spanish or whatever. So it was no one would talk to me in Norwegian, and it made me really sad. But I understand that feeling. I at one point I really wanted to learn sign language, but I didn't. The only person I knew who who was deaf and knew sign language moved away when I was like in junior high, and then I was like, ah oh, man, how am I going to learn sign language now? But that's not really exactly the same either. I feel like we should learn. I feel like we should learn sign language in school. Like that should be a part of the curriculum. Like that's just a thing we should have. I think so. Well, my my high school, well, the high school I was going to at the time, because I actually transferred high school when I was in school, they actually did have a sign language program, but it was like it's part of like this IB program, which is just it's like a grade up from the AP programs that people do. It's just dumb. I mean, it's not dumb. It's it's great stuff. If you do it, you should do it. But it wasn't for me. <laughs> and so since I didn't stay in the program, I wasn't allowed to continue learning sign language. And then I transferred high schools anyway. So then it really didn't matter. <laughs> you're actually your school of University of Michigan was actually where I wanted to go to get my undergraduate degree. I did not end up there. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually on my list of schools. But then because it was out of state, my parents were concerned about the cost of it all. Mm -hmm. So we were like, oh, we don't know if we can have the money to pay for it. So I actually ended up staying in state because it's cheaper to stay in state. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier. And that's I mean, that's why I I, I grew up in Michigan and in just outside Detroit in a little town called Dearborn. We had a campus there. So I was able to actually do most of my like prereqs for my undergrad and still live at home. So I was able to like save some, save some money. And I think that's, it was a really, you know, it's a smart decision to do that, to not like waste money on going to school. I say when you can get a good education right in your backyard, that's super smart. Yeah. I was not smart. I went to private school, but it's okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're doing fine. It was a great decision, obviously, but (laughs) I actually really enjoyed my school. It was a great school. Our degrees were not laid out the same way, which is really funny because I actually graduated with a degree in applied mathematics. So I didn't even actually wow. graduate with what I went to school for in the first place. So, so it really didn't even matter. That's what you're doing now. That's what, I mean, I there you can't go to school for mastering. So, you know, somehow I ended up here, right? So yeah. Uh... Yeah. Which leads to a really great question, my friend. So then if 
you know, you went to school, got an undergraduate, did a master's equivalency and all that sort of stuff. So do you feel like it was genuinely worth it to go to school to, to end up being a mastering engineer? Since in a lot of cases, you don't, you have to study underneath people. You really have to put in those amount of hours of mastering. So, I mean, I know mastering is very specific, but in audio in general, do you feel that it was worth it to go to school to get a degree? I do. Not necessarily for the amount of audio things that I learned in school. I actually learned way more about audio outside of school by getting, you know, getting a part-time job in the studios there and having really great mentors that, you know, that made sure that I, I learned everything that I needed to know about the practical side of audio. But I think that having any sort of program, whether it's self, you know, self-imposed or via um, like a, an internship of some sort, like a long internship, I think that the amount of discipline and commitment that you make to a program like that is extremely important for your own development, especially at that age. And also for networking, social aspect, of course, learning from other people in the same program, I think will just you know, broaden your knowledge. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bachelor's degree in audio engineering, but it, if you want to have a career in audio, you probably ought to commit to something if not for yourself, but because it sends a signal to your potential future employers and people that you want to collaborate with you, that you're able to commit to doing something for more than like three months at a time and not to knock, knock, not to knock working in coffee shops or something, but it's, it's a, it's a level of commitment to the craft that I think that you can't really get in, in any other program. So it's about having intentionality yeah. and, and trying to learn yeah, yeah, regardless of what that looks right. like. And especially, I mean, for audio in general, I do think that it's extremely important to take really focused classes on the physics of physics of, of analog audio, physics of digital audio, physics of acoustics. A lot of the math that we learned in that, in those programs I use every day and having the basics and the fundamentals down is really, really important to being Maybe you don't know everything there is to know about recording a rock band, but at the very least, you know how to make good decisions on what, where to put those people in a room. You know, at the very least, you're, you're able to kind of start to shortcut by being resourceful because of the knowledge that you have. See, and people say math isn't useful. <laughs> Everybody always asks, like, what do you do with math in the real world? I'm like, plenty of things. And you just pointed to my prime example of why I always say math is useful. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so since I don't know if this applies closely to you, but because you did go to school in Norway and you did do school in Michigan, do you feel like when you came out on the other side of school that having a degree that was from an international school was less valued than other degrees? Because I know like sometimes people are always like they make these arguments all the time that international schools aren't held to the same standards in America. And so they'll, like people have told me on multiple occasions, you want to get your degree from America and then go somewhere else. Because if you go somewhere else in the world and then come back, then your degree has less value. I mean, maybe I could see that maybe in some fields, but oh my God, if you have ever been through a, a European Tonemeister program, that will whip your ass so, so much harder than anyone can here in the United States. There is not a program maybe McGill, maybe, that is as stringent as some of the, like, the German Tonemeister programs or some of the 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 uh, the ones from the UK. Like, those programs are 
really, really, really hard to get through. And yeah, if anybody that is not in support of a, an international education should just remember the one fact that, where is it? Have you ever heard of this guy, Bob Katz? He, he's a mastering engineer. I have. He pops up in your yeah. bio everywhere too. <laughs> one sec. Yes. This is Mastering Audio, The Art and Science by Bob Katz. This is a book that almost every decent audio program if they have a, a mastering course or a you know really serious digital audio course, they teach out of this book as a textbook. And so this man, really famous mastering engineer Bob Katz, wrote wrote literally wrote the book that I learned in in school in my undergrad, and then I was also tasked with reading it when I worked for that mastering studio in Norway. And when I got back from Norway, I had I had a job offer to continue working in in this mastering studio and I just had to go back to Michigan to work out my visas and like work out the very ending of my like my graduation from my undergrad long story doesn't matter I had to stay in my undergrad in order to go through this grad program it was really fucky and weird it doesn't matter but I I was in Michigan and just like kind of just like kind of waiting for my visas to go back through so that I could go back to Norway and keep working and my boss from Norway called and he was like look I know you're supposed to come back here but and I'm really stoked about that but Bob Katz, I just heard Bob Katz is looking for an assistant. And this is only it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I've already called him and told him you're going to call him and you already have an interview set up. So you better go get that job. And I was like, oh my, like all the color drained from my face. I was like, oh my God, what does this mean? Like, I can't work for Bob Katz. I'm not, I can't work for Bob Katz. He's like, he's Bob Katz, the fucking <laughs> legend. Like he's Bob Katz. And I ended up going I, I called him. I, wor- I worked it out. We ended, I ended up getting brought down for an interview for a week and a trial, basically. And at the end of the week, he was like, I want to hire you. you. Can you be down here? Can you be in Florida in 10 days? Like moved here. I was like, holy shit. Okay. So I figured it out. But I asked him later on, I was like, why did you hire me? Like you brought, he flew three separate people down. He interviewed on the phone, 40 different applicants. And he picked me. And I was like, what is that about? He was like, well, I did have this one other gentleman who I had interviewed from Chicago and he had already had experience in it. He and I had almost identical experience. We both worked as assistants in mastering studios for about a year. We both had the same amount of education in undergrad. But Bob said that the one reason why he hired me was because I had spent a year abroad. Mm. And he works with a lot of international clients and he wanted to, he said, all things equal. I picked you because you had experience outside the country. Mm. I was like, holy crap. Okay. I guess that does matter to have some experience in the, in an international situation. So if you, if you ever want to know if going, if going abroad or, you know, working out, working outside the U S or getting education outside the U S matters, it absolutely does. And it can sometimes be the reason why you get a gig over someone else. Yeah, that's that's great. I always thought that as well, like that leaving the country. In fairness, I just have the bug of travel. Like I've always been that way since I was like a little kid. I've always been like, I just got to get out. And so we got the wrong kind of travel bug if we're making jokes. I'm making jokes about that. <laughs> and so <laughs> see the world. So I've always wanted to go. One of the places on my list right now that I was trying to get into is the Czech Republic. Because I've always been like, oh my God, yes, this place is just amazing to me. I love the history there. I love like all this stuff. I even started trying to learn Czech. I also discovered I 
you need to work better at that because I <laughs> tried to talk to somebody who also knew Czech and I was like, they were like, yeah. So those accents, right? And I was yep. like, oh man. But yeah, I think that that's really cool because I always like, I always hear that all the time, especially from, from people. And it's always sometimes a little bit discouraging. Like I've seen people be discouraged by being told that and I always kind of found it a little bit sad and probably untrue, but you know, what do I know? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think maybe, I mean, who, who knows, but I think that anyone who, who has the, the, the guts to get up and move across the world for the thing that they love and want to do is, I mean, that says a lot in my book personally. And I think in other people's too, you know, Czech Republic has the, well, I think they are officially the biggest vinyl plant in the world. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, they take a lot of records from us, but they're but they're uh they're big. Okay, so what is up with you in vinyl? Like I feel like I watch okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> that was a bad start to the sentence. <laughs> I was like, uh. <laughs> That should be like my that should be like the the name of my memoir. It's like, what's up with you in vinyl? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I <laughs> I I feel like if I ever have a memoir, I just want it to be called purple. I don't know. Aww. It just feels like that should just be like what it's called. Just call it purple. I think that like encompasses all things Tangela. So I was listening to your interview that you did with the working class audio and you were talking about, I know that's like two years ago, but Matt Boudreaux <laughs> and heartthrob. <laughs> audio heartthrob. Um, I really liked your interview with him, by the way. I think he does a really great job, but he's very like, here's your question. Here's the answer. It was very nice. I was like, man, if only I could make my personality like that. It's because he knows it's because he knows me so well that he has to keep me on track. Matt's known me for a lot of years. It's like, stay focused. One question, one answer. Man, that is not how I live my life. So you and I would get along just fine. <laughs> I've never known how to do that. Probably figure it out at some point. What I was going to say is that in that interview, you talked about like wanting to get back to doing mastering and explicitly about how you want to move away from being in recording studios and focusing primarily on mastering. And now all of a sudden you're like, no, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden to me, at least you're talking about vinyl and wanting to do vinyl and stuff like that. So how did you go from the transition of wanting to do mastering to now being like vinyl all the time. Cause even when you did the Omni sound project, you were talking about vinyl and I was just like, vinyl, vinyl, vinyl. So mastering at its core is about taking audio from one format to another. And back in the day it, it was from tape, analog tape, just like this machine behind me here to a, a lacquer lathe where you cut you cut the sound into the disc with grooves. And mastering being that that format conversion of tape to lacquer, that is that's like really like one of the most important parts of my job is translating the audio from digital to streaming, like to high res digital to relatively low res streaming or transferring it from analog tape to digital or or analog tape to to lacquer and in in like really diving deep into that process i got into you know at its core mastering a uh, mastering engineer should know how to cut lacquer so at you know i felt like i wasn't i mean this isn't going to sound really all that right to my mastering buds out there that are just doing yeah uh, mastering for digital output but i felt like if i really wanted to be a mastering engineer, 
I, I have to like really learn how to cut lacquer. Right. And so I started that drive right, right after I, I, uh, moved out of, when I moved out of uh, Florida, I got this opportunity to go up to the BAM center and work up there. And it just, it was just the right life decision for me at the time. And I ended up learning more about vinyl up there and hi-fi. And, and when I made the decision to move to San Francisco, it was because I chose that place because there was a lathe that I was promised I would learn to cut lacquer on. And lathes are very hard, hard to come by. They are nowadays very, very expensive. The, a lathe today that probably costs uh, $150,000 or $200,000, 15 years ago, people were scrapping them for metal because you couldn't get people to buy them because the vinyl industry had gone, had gone so, so downhill that it was completely silly to even own a lathe. You know, it's this big hunk of metal that's the size of a Volkswagen that's sitting in your studio. Wouldn't you rather have, you know, another couch for a client to sit on, you know, while you master their records for streaming services, which was like the dawning of that really killed CDs. And the dawning of CDs really killed lacquer back in the in the late 80s. So anyway, I, I ended up like choosing San Francisco because there was this really awesome engineer that was a lacquer cutter and one of the best alive. And he was going to teach me how to cut lacquer. It turns out that right after I moved to San Francisco, about a month later, that lathe moved about an hour and a half down the road to the other side of San Francisco. And it's just like a totally like feudal process. But I ended up embracing, of course, embracing mastering for CD and then eventually digital streaming services and things worked out really, really great, really great. But I always still wanted to learn to cut lacquer. So I still like would make the drive out and, and learn to cut from him. And once I started getting more and more into, I started growing my client base in mastering for digital stuff. And, and I started getting a lot of clients calls from people who, you know, kind of knew that I was learning to cut lacquer and they wanted, you know, even if I wasn't going to be able to cut their project, they wanted me to help them make their vinyl masters for, you know, for this new, this new awesome thing called vinyl in the, in the, you know, <laughs> in the uh, 2010s was, you know, vinyl was, was dawning and, uh, and beginning again. And so I started making masters for, for, record pressing eventually and i found that the actual getting the lacquer cut that lacquer itself was not the hard part even the electroplating process that wasn't the hard part either the hard part was an a client actually being able to put an order in and get back the records that they ordered in a timely fashion and i know it was so silly i was just like why is this so hard this is like I have clients coming to me like, you made these vinyl masters for me six months ago and I still don't have my records finished and done, you know, or, or whatever. And I'm just like, how is that possible that we have an industry that you can pay in full for a product and not a cheap product and you can still be waiting six to nine months after you ordered that thing for it to come in the mail and be done? I think like at the time, like we all, we all joked that you, you, you buy a Tesla and you have to basically pay for it in full before it even starts being made for you. And then like you get one, you get on like this waiting list and you put down a deposit for it. And then like a year later they call and they're like, do you want to keep your deposit? Like, cause we're still working on the car <laughs> because, yeah. and that's when I started seeing these parallels to the vinyl industry of like clients that I had that would send in their record to be, to be cut, plated and pressed in places like Czech Republic. And they get the they get a test press back and they bring it to my studio to listen to it. 
and it's basically just a proof. Like when you, you know, when you get your your test presses back, you you want to listen to them, make sure that they're correct before they. Then you say, yes, this is right. Please do the full run, full run of vinyl. Maybe it's a thousand pieces. Please do that full run and then send them to me with the full artwork and everything. So clients would bring me their test presses. I shit you not. There was a time when a client brought me a test press from a very well-known record plant that side A was their record and side B was somebody else's record. There was another time that a client brought back a a, a set of test presses where the, the lacquer cutter had cut off the last song because it was too long to go on their record. Instead of calling anybody and saying, hey, this isn't going to cut right, they literally just cut out song five on side A. Wow. Like, it was just gone. There was another time, another very well-known record plant here in the United States, where the client had sent in, I mastered the, I mastered the record for NEP, and the... The, I did everything in high res 9624. I made the vinyl masters in 9624. And I and I sent the client a set of proofs in MP3 form and said, okay, listen to these real fast. Let me know if you're happy with them. And then I'll send the, the high res files directly to the plant. And the client had by accident just sent the plant the MP3s. And the plant went through the entire vinyl run and cut lacquer and did a full plating and pressing for a thousand units of MP3s of the record that I had just mastered at 96K. So things like that just kept happening over and over and over and over again. And I found out that, you know, I started looking into it and, and I, uh, super, super long story, but over the course of a few years, I, I attempted to open a plant with a couple of my friends in the, in the uh, Oakland area, and it failed miserably. And then I, uh, I learned from all of that, including who to partner with, because that was the biggest problem, and raised, raised enough money to open a plant here in Nashville. So that's what I've been working on. Wow. But basically, I was just like, this can't be that hard. I'll just make my own. I'll just make my own plant. It'll be fine. Yeah, about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, honestly, it was more I started out I started out the vinyl that like that journey into figuring out why it was so hard to make like for clients to get their vinyl back. I started it out just trying to help them broker records through good plants, and then I figured out that there were not a lot of good plants out there. And so then I started trying to partner with some other folks that were working on a on a plant, and it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of time and I ended up figuring out how to how to do it right, and I designed quality control technology that's never been built for vinyl records, and ended up uh, meeting lots of wonderful people in the process, and uh, and I have assembled a, a cool little team to do that here in Nashville. But really, uh, you know, my 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 day to day is mastering records, and my night to night is trying to open this plant, and. Uh, record pressing is really, really hard to do right. There's like every, in order for like, if you're, if you have a stack of vinyl on a shelf somewhere, in order for that vinyl to have been made to a level that's high enough that you can even just listen to it on a turntable, whether or not it sounds good, but whether like just to get the, the, the stylus to not skip up out of the groove and to press a, uh, even a standard, what's standard now is 140 gram record. 
there are so many things. Every single piece of the process has to be done to a high, high level of quality. And I was seeing that quality start to slip. Even things like, you know, pressing a record out of MP3s is that's bullshit. Yeah. Or or not having the right album, not having the right artist on the on the album that you get back. I mean, it's it's laughable. It's a joke, but also the turnaround times. I mean, there was a there was a famous artist out of Oakland, and we we found out that he had ordered records about I think three months before his tour, which was a, that's kind of tight, but like very doable. And he was promised records before he left on tour. Turns out he went, he ordered the records. They still weren't there when he started his tour. He ended up going out to out on tour for like four months, came back and his records were sitting on his doorstep. So it's a massive amount of, of money that he could have made on his tour by selling this merchandise. Vinyl records are still in the category of mechanical royalties, where same same with CDs. They're very different than how streaming royalties work or how how radio radio uh, terrestrial radio play works. So vinyl records are still one of the only ways that an artist can recoup their costs of making their record by selling proper merchandise, not not unlike a T-shirt. So to think about the amount of money that he could have made selling a thousand records on his tour could have funded the whole thing. And to the fact that, you know, he was literally touring this record and he, he couldn't even take advantage of that at all. It just made my heart hurt. And so partially I'm in it because I am determined to help my artists get records made. Partially I'm in it because I think that the quality of this format can be upped quite a lot based on where we're at right now, knowing what we used to, the quality that we used to press records out of, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But lastly, because that that ability to make money on your art and have that have that control as an independent artist is the thing that could make or break your career as an as an as a musical artist and having you know having something that is not absorbently expensive or that you take fucking 9 months to get your records back on average or that you can't even trust that it's done right. I mean, those are the things that drive me to to build out this plant. Wow. That was a lot of passion for for vinyl and I love it. I've always been a fan of vinyl. I always imagined having like a whole room of vinyl. I don't know why. I, it was a childhood dream that's probably never going to happen. But in my head it might. We have one upstairs <laughs> and it's hard to move. <laughs> exactly. And I'm I'm way too I don't want to say flighty. Flighty is not the right word. I want to be in a lot of different places over the course of my life. So being able to move, I travel lightly. So I'm very minimalistic. And so having an album uh, room is not minimalistic. But someday when I decide I'm going to stay in a place for a really long time, I'm going to get right on that. You should. <laughs> you totally should. Or at least a little better than I than already have. <laughs> I mean, I have a decent amount of records now. I have about a show and a half worth of records and I love it. But there's so many other records that I've wanted to buy, but because I know that I'm probably not going to stay in this apartment for forever and that sort of thing. I was like, moving. And also I hate clutter. So we just moved, <laughs> we just moved 3000 records and we had to buy a special air conditioned trailer to do it, to move them out of Arizona oh, um, in the summertime. Yeah. They are heavy. It is literally, it's an entire, it's, it's an entire wall of records. I'll send you a picture. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. I'm such a fan of that. I love it so much. When I was a kid, um, my, I, 
she my uh, great uh, somebody who was related to me <laughs> i was like i don't know how that dynamic actually works <laughs> so we're just gonna skip over great it. great aunt <laughs> twice removed aunt, somebody who was a cousin possibly but we call them aunt person thing anyways they were really into old records especially the the old ones that had like the oh singles oh 45s yeah 45s thank you i was like why am i spacing yeah. on what they're called <laughs> really into those and so that's what kind of stemmed my love of vinyl after that was um having that sort of like introduction to those and i thought that was super cool what's your what's your favorite record right now like just artists whose album yeah. i really like <laughs> yeah uh what are you listening to <laughs> so I haven't listened to a full album in a minute, but I really like Mean Girls the musical. Awesome. <laughs> I like I love really musicals. Love mus- I love musicals with like okay, a Okay, what's your favorite what's your favorite musical? Of all time? Yeah. Easily. Hamilton. Hamilton's oh, my favorite musical of all time. Cool. But behind that, it's I really love his um short musical that he did called 21 Chump Street. And it's, <laughs> That's right. Uh, I know, right? It's only like five songs, six songs, five or six songs, super short musical. It's done in like about 15 minutes. It's amazing. It's a great story about things that happen in um, minority communities, especially around like drugs and stuff. And so, yeah, it was awesome. Really loved it. It's great. Definitely somebody you should go listen to it if you haven't. But I I will check it out. I just love a lot of the stuff that he's done because it incorporates a lot of things that I grew up with in terms of like hip hop music and I've always loved Latin music. I, I take dance classes all the time and go swing dancing and you know salsa dancing and stuff like that. And so I always loved seeing that in musicals because you don't typically see them on a larger screen. Like you can go to like specific black theaters and see them, but on such a larger scale where more people are like aware of them is super great but yeah love love that but yeah so mean girls musical is currently playing on rotation (laughs) i'll check it out but i won't say that it's better than the heathers i think the heathers the musical is still better i didn't know there was a heathers the (gasps) musical yes I'll have to check it out. Yes. That's a great movie. Uh, yeah, it's a great musical. Uh, I I love the music in that one um, a lot as well. What is your favorite musical? What's your favorite album out right now? <laughs> I asked two questions. You can answer either or both. Favorite musical is uh, super cheesy, but it's My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. My Fair Wait, Lady. Julie Andrews version yes. or the... Uh, well, okay. Audrey, uh, what was it? Audrey, Audrey Pepper. Yeah, I think um, I have to say Julie Andrews. Just because I love Julie Andrews. And then that brings me to my second favorite musical, uh, which is Sound of Music. Which is a good one. Sound of Music is amazing. But yeah, I don't know. I like them all. I like that that era of of uh, of love, I guess. Yeah. I like tap dancing. So Thoroughly Modern Millie is also very high on my list. I Like if you're going to tap dance, I'm sold. We're done. I'll go see you. It, just tell me there's <laughs> tap dancing. Done. I'm showing up to the theater. Let's do it. Uh, it's why I got into Newsies. I learned that Newsies had tap dancing and we mm-hmm. got to go see it on Broadway. And I was like, I'm done. I'm sold. All you have to tell me that there was tap dancing. And my friend bought us our tickets and, you know, we paid each other back. But we ended up going <laughs> to see Newsies on Broadway and it was amazing. Brad. And it was everything I thought it would be. I was like, yes, <laughs> the dream was real. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really Love easy it. to please. Love it. <laughs> um, what is your favorite album that's out right now then? Oh gosh. Or not out. I mean, I don't 
I haven't heard it yet, to be honest. Like, I'll like full disclosure, it's on my list of things to do after I finish all my work. Uh, the new Leanne LaHavis record, though, I am sure is incredible. Her first record was life changing for me. I fucking love that record. You should check her out if you don't know her, Leanne LaHavis. The, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty stoked on the the new Madame Gandhi album, the, the recent one. I have to say, I mean, I did master it, so. I kind of a little <laughs> bit biased, but but it's pretty banging. I really like it. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And I I think that I mean one of my favorite records of all time is still the, the still Starfucker. So the Starfucker um, Reptilians album is on rotation all the time. I do not know who that is, but what a name for an album, though. <laughs> I'll have to go go check them out when we're done. Um, I'm always like a huge fan of like putting new music into like the the playlist of repetition. Um, I don't know why I called it playlist repetition. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> rotation. <laughs> I like to listen to in the rotation. In the rotation. In the, in the jukebox. I always forget words. I recently I was doing a these different playlists where I would send them to people of just different songs and albums that I found and was just like, hey, here's something that I'll just share with you. So I always like having something that I can take to people and share that I actually like or that's different and stuff like that. So thank you for that because I will welcome. definitely go down for listening. I had a question to to back it up a little bit. You were talking about vinyl and trans sorry, my lamp keeps going out and now I can't read what I wrote. I was going to ask you something. What was I going to ask you? What's on my list? Here we go. Uh, read the words, Sanj. So recently I got the RX-8 to sort of deal with that sort of stuff. But prior to that, I didn't have any of that. And so I was just like, yeah, that's editing be, around. Yeah. It's kind of going to just stay there because I don't know. But now that I have this, I'm super excited because I'm like, now I can do fun things with stuff and see how well it works or doesn't work, you know? Um, and I got like the whole like isotope suite recently, which was really cool. Well, congratulations. Yeah, it's been, I mean, I mean, not the whole suite. It's like a bundle. <laughs> it has like five or six different things in it. It's like the tonal, ozone, RX-8. Nice. And there's like two other things that came with it probably nectar i was like i don't really know what i'm going to do with any of those other things but ozone i know it's supposed to be about mastering and then rx8 is supposed to be about you know uh fixing audio cleanup and stuff like that so yeah so i'm kind of excited to like learn that stuff i remember when isotope didn't exist and rx as you know it didn't exist and there was a one tool that had basically one purpose you could change the window the fft window and you could change which you could zoom in to a freq- certain frequency but it was called renovator and it was a standalone thing that costs like five or six thousand bucks and before that and that was like that was a good thing because before that all that w- was available were no noise which it would take out clicks and pops from audio or thing called cedar retouch and the cedar system was I mean, somebody could probably fact check me on this, but a cedar system was was like thirty like thirty thousand dollars to start. It was tens of thousands of dollars to have a system that does what we what you probably just paid three hundred dollars to to isotope to do. Yeah. Well, well, it's kind of crazy how technology has come along. It is, and I definitely think about that even in like 
live sound, like the advancements in boards and stuff over the years, oh, yeah. you know, going from like having these giant decks of like, you know, these massive things that are super heavy that you got to pack around and to like, like now you got like Allen and Heath's like, you know, 16 channel thing and you can flip in between all the stuff, you know? Oh, now you got, you got a little iPad mixer just walk around the rock, walk around the venue with an iPad now. And you're Bob's your uncle. Yeah, right. Well, I remember when I, the first time I ever used an iPad to mix on, I was like, this is the weirdest feeling ever. Not because it's like foreign in the sense of mixing. It's just weird to think of the progression of technology. Mm-hmm. I like science. Anyway, it's not really the point about anything though. <laughs> earlier, earlier you were talking about stuff and I was going to ask you a question for, for people who, don't actually know what mastering is, okay? What exactly is mastering? And how does mastering, and what does mastering sound like? Because I know a lot of artists who are like, oh yeah, we're supposed to pay for mastering, but I really don't need mastering. We just got to mix it and it'll be fine. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that works at all. I'm pretty sure people do mastering for a reason. I mean, I know what the reason is, but you know, yeah. why don't you enlighten the people from your perspective? Yeah, so what, I mean, I I already kind of explained a little bit about what mastering is. It's about format conversion. So you're taking a collection of songs and you're putting them into an album from uh, high-res digital to, let's just say, to vinyl or from tape to high-res digital or high-res digital to relatively low-res streaming. So that's that's one part of mastering. It's a very technical process. It's about preserving the, the quality of the music, the sound of the music across different formats that all sound different. So digital sounds different than tape, sounds different than vinyl, sounds different than streaming, sounds different than CD, sounds different than uh, uh, wax cylinder, okay? So the music, though, ha- is the same, and it still has to present in the same way to the listener, okay? So that's, ma- that's one part of mastering. The second part of mastering is about taking a collection of songs that were all recorded in different studios by different engineers and producers, even if it's the same artist, if more than one person has worked or collaborated on the album, they're hearing it and they're making decisions on the sound, like EQ, compression, mix balance. They're making those decisions through their own lens. And so an artist, like I just did a Leanne Rimes album and it was mixed by a couple of different people. And so the different songs sounded almost like a different artist and they're all good. It's just that it's my job to translate, to to figure out and, and figure out how to take song a c and d and make them sound like b e and g and then take the things that are common across all of those songs and and exploit that one common thing and that's what i do as a mastering engineer so for instance most of the time it's going to be a vocal because the vocal is the first thing that people hear that if it's different level even between song one and song two they're going to want to turn their volume knob up or down so that's one that's one part of mastering. The other part is a very technical uh, translation of those songs. So song one and song two might measure on a meter exactly the same. Uh, if you're looking at, at you know just just like average loudness, they might measure exactly the same, but they might sound wildly different. And so it's my job to figure out why those sound different and to and to fix song one or song two to so that they present the same. And then the third part about mastering that is the, arguably the most important is the quality control process. Because when you have lots of people collaborating on an album, and usually when it gets to me, it's over budget, over time, 
So the deadline's already hit. And the artist is like so over it. They're just like ready for the thing to be out. And what happens when those three things culminate, they come together on a project, the project ends up, uh, there are errors. There are things that slip through the cracks. And so quality control in the record making process is really ultimately up to the mastering engineer to call out like, hey, so-and-so, I noticed that the reverb on the backup vocals in the third chorus sounds different than the reverb in the backup vocals on the first chorus. Is that intentional? Or, hey, artist, I noticed that you, in the email that you sent me about the album, you, you know, uh, you capitalized every proper noun and you didn't capitalize any of the other let- the other words. And in your album artwork, it, every every first letter of every word is capitalized. Which is it? Or hey, artist, I know that you know you sent in the files marked one through ten for the songs, but on your sheet they're in a different order. So how do we deal with that? Or even simple things like there's a click or a pop in the vocal in a very bare part of the song, or is very very prevalent and are very prominent sorry it's been a really long day full of meetings so uh it's very prominent in the music and i don't think it's intentional can i get rid of that for you with isotope and or things like hey mixing engineer just between you and me mixing engineer bud that i know your work is really good 90 percent of the time and this one song could maybe be a little bit mixed a little bit differently would you like some advice on how to do that because you and i have worked together for so long and i know what this is supposed to sound like really and so having little relate like closed relationships with mixing engineers and producers that i can help them look good that's another huge part of my job so catching problems translating the audio from format to format to to preserve the integrity of the music and taking a collection of songs that is uh worked on by a bunch of different people and getting it through to become an album and then out into the world through the manufacturing process. So I believe that mastering is the end of the creative process of making a record and the beginning of the manufacturing process. And my job is not done until the artist hears their music out in the world on the radio or on Spotify or on vinyl, and they are fucking stoked. Mm. And if they, if they aren't that, then I haven't done my job right. So that's basically what mastering is and what my job is in a nutshell. I work on about one album a day or uh, an EP and a handful of singles at any point. Mastering, just so you know, is not terribly expensive. So anyone that's considering whether or not they should have their record mastered, at least talk to me. At least give me a call and say like, hey, you know, is this a candidate for mastering? If so, how much does it cost? It's usually less than the artist thinks it's going to be. And really, it's about having your back because... If you don't get that song, if you don't get that album mastered and it goes out into the world and you press a thousand CDs and it had an error on it, who's the person that you can look to to be upset about? Is it the mixing engineer? They were, they're not the mastering engineer. They didn't, they, they don't have any liability insurance for that kind of thing. Or what happens a lot is, you know, the artist will decide at the very last minute that they want to make an order change or their graphics person wrote up the order wrong. And now we got to fix the CD master, the vinyl master. And Mastering engineers are the ones that have the relationships with the manufacturing plants to be able to make those changes last minute. We're the ones that can call in favors because we send them all out of business, things like that. My normal day-to-day is that I get a I get an album to master and my um, my manager, Raylan, will get it loaded in for me. She'll deal with the client uh, to make sure that we have all the information 
that we need to get the project started. I'll have a, com- a conversation with the client and make sure that I understand what the goals of their project is. And that kind of brings to, you know, to the next question that you had, which was what, you know, what does mastering sound like? Hopefully it makes the artist sound more like the artist. A mix is a mix and a master is a master. And those two are not the same. A mix is a master is not just a louder mix. And the mastering is really hard to judge, you know, one track off of a full album. It's hard to judge how well the mastering engineer did. You have to kind of take it all in context. But in general, it should just feel right. It should feel professional. It should feel done. It should feel ready to release. And nowadays we have all these new technical specifications with streaming where you can't just be chasing the loudness of an album anymore. We actually have target rates that we, we want to try and hit. And, and getting through that process with a, with a uh, knowledgeable mastering engineer is really going to make your, your art and your music stand out better on, on other streaming services or in playlists and things like that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because I hear that all the time. People are like, ah, we're not going to pay the master because that's too much. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> well, I mean, if you've just spent, you know, I mean, in theory, if you've just spent $10,000 to get 10 songs done, why not spend another thousand to get a master done properly? I mean, mastering, I find, usually ends up being about 10% at the most of the album cost. It's not that much. I definitely always encourage people to do it for sure. Thank you. What are some of the differences between mastering for like, let's say like, large pop acts like let's say Beyonce because that's like everybody's dream in the world right is to work with her versus like let's say you know some rock band like uh we're gonna go with Weezer that's what I thought of what's the difference between working with different different artists different styles of music how do you like do you master differently between the different styles of music and what does that look like yeah yeah I do I mean the tools that I use are all the same generally it's it's just this same mastering console, EQ compression, little bit of high frequency limiting, limiting, sometimes a multi-band uh, just to control some low end. The output ends up being generally should sound loud enough, big enough, well-balanced, sound appropriate for the genre. But the approach, whether it's a, I, I would say that the difference, like working on like one of Beyonce's more rock focused tracks versus like a Weezer track is not really all that different. But if I'm working with like a super, like super bassy electronic, like dance kind of person or working with, with Weezer, yeah, then I'm going to use a different approach. And, and mostly it's just that you, you have to remember that a rock, an album that has only electronic stuff in it has different types of pure tones than something that was recorded in a room with a band with acoustic instruments. And so you can do more and you can play with it, play with loudness more. You can play with space more in an electronic bass track because you don't have phase, phase issues that are introduced that were part of the recording process by an acoustic artist. Gotcha. It was like something that's like, a you know a big band versus something that is a vocal you know forward track or something the tools that i use are not different but the way that i use them are probably going to change the presentation earlier um you talked about and just in general reading about you you went from california to nashville and i don't know if i have this concept right so if i'm wrong in this idea Please let me know. But from my understanding of what I read, uh, you went from being an engineer in California 
you had your own business and now you're in Nashville and you're part of a collective there, right? Underneath Infosonic Sound. Infrasonic, yeah. Infrasonic Sound. Let's make sure I pronounce that correctly. So what made you want to go from being basically your own business within your own right to being now part of a collective? Now, I mean, obviously you're still your own business in a lot of regards, I think, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you are more part of a co-op than you were by yourself. So what, why make that transition? Well, the, um, the process of just for the record, I only have two more questions right after this. <laughs> okay. Okay. No problem. It's, it's all good. I just have a six o'clock. I think she was reminding me of. So you asked how I got from Oakland running my own business to joining Infrasonic mastering in Nashville. And it's actually a really organic process. My buddy Pete for a long time in San Francisco, I was working for another mastering company and was not necessarily like I basically was was managing my own clientele my own billing my own pretty much everything so at that point I kind of realized like okay I might might be better just to be out on my own and I had run my own business for a long time doing other other things like recording and stuff so I just translated that into a brand change for myself essentially and I made this little company called Neato Mastering and we did really well in in Oakland um we grew i was able to lower my overhead by moving to the building that i went into in Oakland and i was really having having a pretty great time and my buddy Pete had made me a couple of offers to move to LA to join Infrasonic down there and i just it was never really the right time i was also working on this other vinyl plant in in Oakland and just and it uh, over the course of a couple of years he and i you know he and i stayed in touch and he kept making me better and better offers and then one day he and i were t- we were talking and he was like, Hey, I'm in Nashville and everything's really great. You should, you should be here. I was like, all right, I can do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, mar- I mean, partially. Cause like, I didn't want my, like, I didn't want to move just from Northern California to Southern California and like be in a really awesome community of engineers in LA. But also like it was, it was just as easy for me to just stay in Oakland. But Nashville was a place that I had always wanted to be. And I found this cool opportunity. And so basically what happened was I left the studio in Oakland open and I was traveling back and forth. My assistant, Chris was working out of that studio and I was, I was traveling back and forth to Nashville for about a year. And then the pandemic hit and I wasn't traveling anymore. So I just went and pulled all my gear out of my Oakland studio and brought it all out here to Nashville because I hadn't been back there in eight months. And it was just time to not have that hanging out in the wind as a liability. And it was time to bring all my equipment out. So I did operate as uh, Infrasonic Oakland, as like the Oakland wing, because we have we have Infrasonic LA, we had Infrasonic Nashville, and I, I made a, what was a third studio basically. Um, but now I work, Pete and I work out of the same room and it's pretty, it's a pretty incredible place to, to be cool thing was he and I have the exact same speakers. So, um, in the same front end and most of the same mastering gear. So it was kind of perfect to be able to bop back and forth between Nashville and build my clientele here and then go back to take care of my Bay area clientele. But I kind of looked at everything and I was like, all right, I kind of work with clients all over the world. I work with a lot of clients from LA, uh, Nashville, of course, um, New York, uh, Europe, and all and everywhere in between. And so I kind of just decided uh, through this pandemic a few months ago to just make Nashville my home base moving forward. And I still work my most of my clientele is still uh, supporting the Bay Area. And, um, and I try and take care of those clients the best that I can. But it's working for myself was fun. I had a I had a good little handle on it. I had a great manager, Johnny Rago. He helped build my business there. And when Pete made me the offer to go to Nashville, I basically saw it as an opportunity to join 
one of the finest mastering teams in the world. I mean, if you just look up the discography, even just the recent, yeah. I mean, we've, we're running out of wall space for how many Grammys in, Infrasonic has. And it's, it's really, really cool to just work with my friends. Mastering is a really solitary thing. And, and for the most part, when I was in Oakland, I was just by myself in a room all the time. And now I'm able to be part of a, a proper studio and a firm and not, you know, not have to be so responsible for every bit of my business for mastering anyway. So it's just, it was just the right thing at the right time. And Pete made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Like the Godfather. That's always really nice. I know a lot of people always, sometimes people view, you know, going from working from your, working for yourself to working with somebody else as like Mm -hmm. a downward step. And not not with this. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, it didn't seem like it from, you know, I mean, and this is a, Dude, this is the thing that never happens. I actually had to pinch myself. Like when when this when this was happening, I was like, this is maybe a thing that would have happened 30 or 40 years ago where an independent mastering engineer would get swallowed up by a big firm or like my clientele and my my business would get swallowed up by a bigger place. But for my business to have the opportunity to join Infrasonic and I still have the ability to come and go as I please, work with the clients I want to, set my rate, like and have management and everything and be part of a studio with Pete Lyman, Dave Gardner, Dan Bachgloopy, Raylan Janicki. Like that is insane. It's a really, really cool place to work. And I feel really lucky to work with the team that I do. It was a huge step up for me in my career. And just visibility wise, it was time to, to, to make a leap. It was cool. That's always really cool. It's always nice when people can make that sort of smooth transition too. And it doesn't end up turning out to a negative effect. Cause you know, sometimes you read about other, so many p- other people and their transitions do not go as smoothly as they hoped. And next thing you know, they're like out on the streets again, trying to rebuild their own brand, their own business because yeah. of various well, reasons. So hope that doesn't fun. happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I doubt that it will for you, but I'm just other humans out there in the world, you know, all those other people that happen too. Yeah. So that was really interesting. So moving on to another topic, you are on the board of a lot of things, or at least you were. I still think that you are, but I still think the ones that you are on is is a big, is a lot. So you were with Sound Girls, with Wham, with AAS. And I know that in a lot of those different organizations, Part of uh, what they're striving for is addressing equality and inclusion mm-hmm. in audio. But mm-hmm. what are some ways in which you, on a small localized way, a uh, localized uh, form, try to help tackle equality in audio? I mean, the biggest thing that can that you know can be done is just to hire women. Period. Hire people of color. Period. The the only the, I mean, you know, we can make educational programs that provide safe spaces for people to learn um, and not feel like they're, you know, in this like group of bros or something that are always trying to, you know, learn, you know, or, or like talking over them or something. We can, we can put money into, you know, arts funding for diversity, things like that. But really at the end of the day, I think that the thing that we can do is hire more people, you know, of lower numbers in the industry, not people that are not traditionally hired and 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 not you know of course overlook them or look just see a big name and 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 go for that that white dude that is uh, honestly uh, hiring people uh from the the 
the corners of the of the industry that don't usually get hired. That's the way to to fix this thing. Also, obviously, STEM education for women and young girls early in school is extremely important and elevating people that reflect the type of person that we need more of in the industry. So elevating women, people of color into more, you know, higher management roles. And of course, uh, you know, giving them a platform to speak when we have presentations and things like that. Yeah, I was, I am on a lot of boards, um, starting to, starting to dwindle them down a little bit, but I, I, I helped to start the first ever diversity and inclusion, what was originally just a little work group, a little initiative with the audio engineering society. And it turned into a, a, a board of directors ratified committee. Uh, with a with a mandate to have more diversity in the audio engineering field and the audio engineering society as a whole, and we're already starting to see the fruits of our labor. My my uh, co chair on that was Leslie Gaston Bird, and she's an incredible woman uh, engineer. Um, she's currently based in the UK, but she wrote a book on um, gender in audio very recently. And there's like there's a million other things that happen in the diversity world that. We always think about it in terms of audio because that's where we're at, but we don't realize and we forget a lot about the fact that these issues are national and international conversations and they're happening way outside of the audio world. And we're only just getting a little piece of it right now. It's going it's to get better in a lot of ways, but it's also going to get worse and it's going to get really uncomfortable for some folks that are used to doing it this way forever. And I look forward to that. <laughs> Um, I, I, there's a lot, there's a lot more to it. I'm also, I'm, I'm a a trustee of the board of, um, the board of, of of the recording Academy and we have a massive diversity initiative, um, that's been happening. And I'm also the co-chair of the uh, producers and engineers wing steering committee. And we have a huge diversity goal as well. I mean, there's, there's, this is now not just a, oh, should we maybe do this? But this is a, we are doing this. And I do think that, you know, pushing the conversation all the time is awesome, but hiring women and hiring people of color to the audio engineering fields is the most important thing we can do. Put your money where your mouth is. For sure. With that, did you, I mean, okay, so how did you get into like being a part of this diversity initiative? Like, was it something that you always had like a passion for? Or was it something that you just kind of looked around one day and was like, this needs to exist in the world? Kind of that that there was a moment where i was uh, i i started teaching i was teaching college audio classes and i realized of course that the you know the the dudes were always the ones that were cl- crowding around the console not letting the others see and that the women in the classes were you know just a couple of them usually I, one class i had three women i was floored but they're you know they were sitting in the back and i would always call on them and ask them you know and they always knew the answer even after the dudes had answered incorrectly three times right in a row and so I started realizing that uh, I wanted to put more more of my effort and time into things like Women's Audio Mission, where, you know, if that organization didn't exist, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at. I mean, the fact that I was able to network with other women in the audio industry when I started in as a freshman in college at, at AES conventions, I mean, that was that was huge for me. And I realized that other women that are not in the industry or that don't feel like they belong or feel welcome, they're having that experience, but they just didn't have the networking connections that I did to to get into this. All of my all of my role models in audio and all of my mentors were men. It's not like I had a woman who who uh, you know pulled me aside and was like, "You should do this. You'd be great." And 
and I wish I'm glad that that's that's different now, you know, that I have opportunities to mentor women in audio and I have a lot of friends and close colleagues that are mentoring other, you know, mentoring women and people of color, but that wasn't the, that wasn't the norm when I started. And so I didn't really even know that there was a problem until I started teaching a lot and I started realizing these things and women's audio mission, for instance, giving a safe space for women and girls to learn about audio and, 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 you know, these harder sciences around the acoustics and music and stuff just, meant that they were able to fast track their education and learned a lot more, a lot faster and became better engineers as, as a result, because they didn't feel like they were embarrassed to ask a question in front of the dudes. So I think that that was really important. And then, I don't know, I just kept getting asked to give my opinion about diversity and things. And one day I kind of realized like, I'm a bit of a reluctant leader in this, in this women in audio thing. And, uh, I guess here I am. Okay. I guess I'll serve. I'll figure it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I was just, just stupid and aloof and I didn't really realize how much of a problem there was until I kind of like p- picked my head up and started looking around and realized that there were not a lot of people like me. And it's not because I'm special. It's just because other folks don't have the right opportunities and don't have the right voice to, to, to figure out how to learn this. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So like as my final question, I, obviously support diversity and inclusion. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm a prime example of why that is a great thing, but how do you figure out the balance between encouraging people and giving them opportunities, but then also not going so far as to alienate the other side or giving people opportunities that don't actually Mm -hmm. deserve them. Yeah. Deserve deserve them. Yeah. I mean, obviously we have to hire, we have to hire qualified women and, you know, people of color. Um, you know, I don't really think that, you know, bringing someone onto a crew to do a, you know, to build a, 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 a front of house speaker stack when they're not, uh, not qualified to know things like safety concerns. I mean, that's, that's just silly, but you know, when, when you're going to, hire for a position or you're going to say, put together a panel of people to present on a specific topic. All we asked from the beginning was consider a woman on that panel. Mm. If you, until the, you have exhausted all search for a woman, then okay, make the panel five dudes. But mm. if you can make the panel, you know, four dudes and one woman or two, two, two dudes and three women do it. That's, that's all we're, that's all we're trying to do. And, you know, and, you know, there was a lot of pushback. There are a lot of people that are really uncomfortable. And I, and like I said, this has become an international conversation where there are protests and riots and things happening. And you cannot ignore that if you do not get on the ball with this right now, you're going to be behind you're going to be on the wrong side of history. And we're starting to see companies, audio companies realizing this. We're starting to, we're starting to see that uh, most of the major membership organizations and trade organizations are getting behind this. And unfortunately just took, you know, things like the Me Too movement and, 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 you know, real action, uh, women's marches in Washington and things like that, that have been happening for many, many years, but now are happening right in the forefront and are right on the, the, the um, right in front of everyone's faces. You know, I hope things like, you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement will change some things in the audio world too. I don't, 
I don't know. And like I said, it's going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of folks that are used to it being a certain way for a long time. Those are my thoughts. Those are all good thoughts. Those are good thoughts. I like your thoughts. And thank you for, you know, thank you for asking questions like that and giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Maybe not the most eloquent at this moment, but it's, uh, but it's a really important, it's a really important topic and something we do have to talk about and figure out how to support even better. Yeah, no, I agree. But I have to go. I also, yeah, I was about to say, but I also know that you have to go. So uh, thank you for being here and I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm looking forward to chatting with you more, Tangela. Um, I think that if you uh, want to know more about me or or audio or or anything, you can look me up on the internet. I do have a, a, a profile on um, all of the major social networks. And a LinkedIn profile that I haven't updated in like three years. But I also have an email address. <laughs> so you can find that online. So you can always email me. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And I'm so, so glad we made this happen.